Footprints presents Bridge Builders, a series featuring people who've been promoting exchanges and understanding between China and Britain. China's the country that we all want to know about today. But if you want to understand China now, you need to know about its history. For over 40 years now, historian and broadcaster Michael Wood has brought history alive for viewers and readers all over the world. His books and TV documentaries span many different periods of the past, from the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great to the Dark Ages of England and the Conquistadors in South America. In The Story of India, and later The Story of China, he tackled the intriguing and incredible histories of the world's two most populous nations. In six 60-minute films, Wood took on the task of bringing the story of China to a Western audience, and in the process, charmed viewers in what the Chinese call the Middle Kingdom itself. So, come with us on this great adventure, the story of China. Why should the West learn about Chinese history? Well, you're talking to a historian, I'm biased, of course, but, but history is the explanation of, of, of everything, really. Uh, but in China, the history is kind of uniquely powerful and influential on the Chinese present. You have to know about the history because it's a big determiner, not only for the way the Chinese see the world, but even in terms of character, you know, the collectivity of the people and so on. Michael Wood's Story of China series was first shown on British TV in 2016. It chronicled the rise and fall of the great Chinese dynasties, the emperors, poets and philosophers who shaped Chinese culture. He also spoke to normal people about their family histories. As Professor of Public History at the University of Manchester, Wood is particularly interested in the everyday lives of people in the past. The great thing about Chinese history is the records go back so far. I mean, you've got really great 11th century BC accounts of the fall of the, the Shang, which obviously come from a daily royal record, you know, amazing stuff. Chinese poetry is older than the Iliad or the Odyssey, and the continuous thread of poetry, and it's so important to the Chinese people, you know, the poetry. So uh, it's the capaciousness of it, if I can put it that way, the sheer volume of stuff. Even if you'd learned to read Chinese at an early age, you could never even cover the immense quantity of stuff that there is. For all the destructions that have happened in Chinese history, that what survived is, is amazing. And archaeology, of course, is bringing new stuff up in the, to, to the light all the time. Whole volumes of legal cases from the Qin dynasty with verbatim transcripts and everything else come out since then, you know. So the amount that's being discovered is, is incredible, you know. Letters from the real-life soldiers of the Terracotta Army writing home to mum. In 1974, the tomb of the Jing Emperor was uncovered in Xi'an in western China. It's still being excavated today. Among the incredible artefacts dating from this period, including the thousands of lifelike soldiers known as the Terracotta Army, were letters inscribed on wooden tablets, written by the real soldiers of the Qing Army over 2,200 years ago. On these wooden boards, a pair of brothers, Hei Fu and Jing, write to their family in Zhang, 
their hometown in today's Hubei province. How is mother? We are fine. Recently, we were split up, but we are back together again now. Hefu has entrusted me to beg you for help, and putting this into writing. Send me cash. Don't bring summer clothes. Now, when you get this letter, mother, look in Anlu for silk clothes that is cheap. If there's some that can be made into an unlined skirts and shirts, can you make that and send it with the cash? If the clothes is too dear, just send the cash and I will make the clothes myself with handcloth. How are Auntie, Sister Kanglu, and Aunt Gushu? Send best wishes to our young Infan. Best regards. And what about that business? Is it settled yet? And it's that thing again with China that you look at the terracotta army becomes a kind of、uh, mnemonic in the outside world for China. You know, and they're regimented,、uh, uh, vast numbers of soldiers, regimented, impassive,、um, hardly differentiated, and. And that's a, that's a controlling image, whereas in actual fact, the letters are the real life stuff, and they're full of life and fun and family and stuff like that. So we we are all influenced by these images, which are so so important in the way we see another civilization. Michael Wood says studying the history of China is essential if you want to understand the country as it is today. His fascination with China stems from his teenage years growing up in Manchester, in the north of England. I was at school. I was 16, and I went into the bookshop in Cross Street in Manchester, and there was a new Penguin classic of late Tang poetry. What causes you to pick up a book like that? I don't know. But as I turned the pages, it was like a kind of world that I never even dreamed existed. It was so fantastic. Of course, the standout was Du Fu, late Tang poems, but other greats as well, and I always loved that stuff and still do. In fact, nearly 40 years later, I made a film about Du Fu. <laughs> you know, you kind of keep your old passions, don't you? Michael's film about China's greatest poet, Du Fu, was shown on British TV in 2020 and was a huge success in China. What's incredible is how few people outside of China are familiar with Du Fu's work. The poet lived in the eighth century and travelled extensively around the country, writing poems not only about the epic battles of the time, but also about life, family, and food. So, what is it for Michael Wood that makes Du Fu such a wonderful poet? From my conversations in places like Chengdu, they like his character, they like his love of his family. They like his love of food, even though he was starving half the time. You know, he writes quite a lot about food. They like his ironical,、um, but very committed take on politics, and they like his extraordinary imagery and poetry. It seems to me, and again, I'm not an expert in these, is really, really important to the Chinese people. And it has been for this huge length of time. The Chinese talk about the poet historians. You know, Du Fu is a poet historian, and in a way, the poets can say things that nobody else can say. And a Chinese person today can quote a line from Du Fu, and everybody will know what they're talking about. It's about the eighth century, but it can be about politicians now, and everybody understands that the, 
you know, it's ingrained in their psyches almost. So people call him the greatest Chinese poet, but he's kind of more than that, really. Du Fu, he started off as a young man. He was so gifted and people praised him so much when he was little. You know, even as a nine-year-old child, he says, you know, people thought I was a genius. And his narrative of his early life, by the time I was 14, I was, I thought I could conquer the world. And then he undercuts himself by, and he sits the examinations. I thought I was brilliant. I'd read every book you could read, you know. There was no way I wasn't destined for a great career. And I failed. They, they failed me. So from that, you start to understand that actually, He'd been a very privileged person when he was young and thought the world was his oyster and failed. And we don't quite know how he paid for himself in his 20s and 30s, but he, he traveled China and he probably got jobs in different places. He drank a lot, he, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then he realized he was wasting his life. And I think he didn't really see his own greatness until the Great War of An Lushan in 755 and the, the brilliant emperor abdicating and the disasters and millions of people being killed, the capital being destroyed and all the dreams that he had were demolished. The city has fallen, only the hills and rivers remain. In spring the streets were green with grass and trees Sorrowing over the times, the flowers are weeping. The bird startled my heart in fear of departing. The beacon fires were burning for three months. A letter from home was worth 10,000 pieces of gold. I scratch the scant hairs on my white head and vainly attempt to secure them with a hairpin. He hates doing these tiny jobs he gets from the government where he's in some miserable two-bit place signing bits of paper. And then it gets worse, you know, the, the climate disasters, the, the, the deaths of so many people. He goes back to the village where he sent his wife and kids for safety and his little son has died of starvation. Behind the gates of the wealthy, food lies rotting from waste. Outside, it's the poor who lie frozen to death. He's stripped of everything. And that's a powerful thing to happen to any human being, really. And yet he kind of carries on as best he can. His health was bad, he had asthma, his hair goes white and thins, his teeth fall out, and, he's talk and he talks a lot about getting old. He's almost lost hope, but he's still looking after the family and doing the best he can but he really suffered in the end. Want stately figures in the art of rhyme, now sadly down at heel, our careers in ruin. Regarded by our servants with disdain, we are grown old and gray before our time. Yet in your joyful, carefree company, the most consoling thought occurs to me Though we are doomed to poverty and strife, our poems shall have a long and prosperous life. Dufu's poetry, like all great literature, spans time and space. We can learn a lot about the history and culture of a place through its verse. 
you know, we, I've made lots of films, 120 films, and, and, and with literature, it's best if you tell a story. And, um, you know, I did a four-part biography of Shakespeare on BBC Two, and you tell it as a story, a life story, and we did, we did exactly the same with Dufu. And you're trying to conjure feelings and uh, out of the, the verse, which will move people. So that's what you try and do as a filmmaker, it's as simple as that. Already captivated by the poems of the Tang dynasty, Wood made his first visit to China in the early 1980s, just as the country was opening up to the outside world after Deng Xiaoping's reforms. It was an incredibly exciting time to be there. You met people in the streets, and in, especially in the sort of old industrial towns and stuff like that, and they'd all pretty much gone through a great trauma. And they were so anxious to open up to the world, you know, and you could be at a bus stop and people would come up with it. There was a show on television teaching you how to learn English. And they, they had a, a, a cycler styled as it then was, photocopied kind of, uh, um, you know, word lists and things. And they'd come up to you at bus stops going, what's this? How do I pronounce this? So it was really great, actually, very, very touching. And then, of course, by the late 80s, the reform and opening up had really started to, to motor. It would, the experience, I would say, between first going in the early 80s and then, and then the, from 2013 onwards was just mind-boggling. He's been able to witness history at first hand through the many visits he's made to China. As a historian, Michael Wood has taken on some of the most challenging and complicated histories of the world. Some of our big series that we've made in our little company have been seen in more than 140, 150 countries, you see. So they have a big, wide shelf, like the story of India was massive in America and it continues to be seen. So people want to know out there, that's the thing. There is a huge TV audience of people who really want to, to know and understand more about the world. And that's why we make our films, you know, it's as simple as that. But in China, they seem to have struck a chord, which I'm not really the best person to judge. But the Xinhua news agency reviewed the story of China and they said that it had created something inexplicably powerful and moving for the TV audience and transcended the barriers of race and culture, you see. Now, that's the best review I've ever had because that's what you hope to do. You know, I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class Brit and if I do a f series of films in India or China and the people themselves think that it wasn't worth doing, then it's a complete failure. If the people whose culture you're really making the film about think that it doesn't represent them, then you're wasting your time. But what happened in China was that the Chinese people themselves responded to something like the story of China or Dufu and, and said, that touches me, that corresponds to something that I feel about my own culture. In one or two cases, people were saying, it, it corresponds to things I didn't realize that I I did feel about my culture, you know, I remember, I remember a wonderful email from a Chinese viewer about uh, the episode three of the story of China when, um, with the fall of the, the Northern Song and the destruction of Kaifeng, which at that, at that point was the greatest city in the world. And she just said, uh, she felt kind of almost, after all the great achievements, she, she watched the film, felt almost heartbroken, that, you know, she understood that it, this really meant something and she hadn't thought about it before. So um, it's a very privileged position as a filmmaker and you, you take things on and you think, have we bitten off more than we can chew? You try for some kind of meeting of minds, you know. I honestly think that if you'd 
don't try and make films like this, then both sides of the world understand each other less, you know, so it is worth the effort. Making both his story of China and Du Fu film, Michael has been able to travel all over China. He's made many friends and has really got a feel for the country, its culture and its people. I remember when I first went to China uh, in the early 80s and, and leaving China, I'm feeling very uh, sad to be going. The Ch my experience of the Chinese people, and of course people's experiences are different, is how fantastically sociable and fun they are. They're, they're, they're real fun and they're great to be with. And, and, and I felt quite a sense of loss when I first left China. And I've experienced that every time that I've been to China. And in fact, on this, after this last phase in which I suppose I've been about a dozen times, you know, people, including my kids, have said, oh, you must be really glad to see the last of China. And actually, you know, I can't wait to go, to go back, you know. Um, I love Chinese civilization, if I can put it that way. Just the, the way they do things, the sense of humor, the food, the sociableness. Um, I feel comfortable um, being in China. And he's also found similarities between Chinese and British people. You know, there's a great word in English which is being fair. You know, when, when English people say that's not fair, that's, that, that, that means something. And actually, I think the Chinese have a great sense of fairness as well. I think sociability is a big thing. You know, the Chinese love dining together and drinking together. Lots of drink, <laughs> if possible, you know. So that side of it makes it very easy for an English person to feel at home in China, I think. It's the sociableness of the people. And the other thing I would say, and people might find this strange at the moment, I mean, we're living through a really great crisis at the moment, but the Chinese order through history has fundamentally been a moral order. The Confucian ethic and all the great interpreters afterwards of the ideal of what a state should be is a moral order. And I don't think the Chinese people themselves have forgotten that. I remember traveling around China when we did our film on Dufu a couple of years ago, just before the outbreak started. And I remember talking to people in Chengdu about what made Dufu so great and why the Chinese people still loved him. And it was his unswerving moral vision. He was loyal to the state as long as the state was virtuous, but his unswerving moral vision. And I think the Chinese people still have that. Michael Wood is also president of the SACU, the Society for Anglo and Chinese Understanding, promoting friendship between China and Britain. He believes it's essential East and West meet and understand each other. It was founded in, I think, 1965 by Joseph Needham, who was the great uh, scientist and chemist and the originator of this huge series, Science and Civilization in China, which is now you know, extended to many, many volumes. And it's, some people have called it the greatest intellectual endeavor since Aristotle. You know, it's a, a staggering achievement, which still continues. And he was a great believer in reaching out and having dialogue between China and, and the West. And he'd known China over in the end of the Second World War. He'd been there during the, you know, battles against the Japanese and then the Civil War. So he'd he had a long experience of China, and he founded the society really to create dialogue 
an understanding, mutual understanding, mutual respect between the civilizations. He got accused of being too much of a communist sympathizer, uh, which he probably was, you know. But, you know, that's, that's how it started. And it's material, it's developed over time. And I think after I'd done the story of China, they asked whether I would take on a little, the little role of being president. I don't really do anything very much apart from do things about China, but it still fulfills that role. And a very, very important role now, you know, because attitudes to China have changed. Period after Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up, right up to 2008 Olympics, even afterwards, there was a feeling of positive opening up still. SACU arranges debates and events. This year, for example, members have been invited to a discussion about China and the Ukraine crisis. There are film clubs and cultural events and even a hot pot dinner. SACU's mission is to provide facts and analysis about China to people in the UK, not uncritically, but always from a firm base of friendship. Bridge building between any cultures is important, always, because, uh, you know, respect, understanding, even affection are, are things that motivate us as human beings. And if you don't have that, you can very easily lapse into demonization of the other side if, uh, if things get difficult. And uh, so I think bridge building is really vital. As a historian, what does Michael Wood think will be China's priorities in the 21st century? What some have already called the Chinese century. Obviously, China has achieved incredible things since the Deng Xiaoping's opening up. They've taken more people out of poverty than has ever happened in human history. The rebuilding of China has been unbelievably successful in, in, in so many ways. And uh, I would say that the narrative that China has had about the hundred years of the century of humiliation from the Opium Wars to the, the triumph of the Communist Party, that can be dropped now. And I know a lot of Chinese historians who think the same. You know, I'm not just saying this as a Westerner. China is where it is now. It doesn't need to fear th these things. It doesn't need to go back over, rake over all these things again. Things happen the way they did in the 19th century, but that's done. And China can play a very, very positive role in the world. I'm sure everybody wants in the world for there to be more cooperation and more friendliness. Look, I'm a professor in Manchester University. We have the biggest student body of Chinese students in the whole of Europe, more than 10,000 students, you know. These are really useful, enriching connections for everybody. So we want the world to go ahead on that basis of mutual collaboration and cooperation, and especially America and China, even though they're not going to, you know, we've got to defuse the rhetoric where America is, is saying, you know, it, it's inevitable there's going to be a war and, and so on. You know, we want to defuse that. The world hasn't got the time or the, you know, we cannot afford there to be any kind of conflict at this point, especially with the, the dire effects of climate change, which are going to affect China almost more than anybody, you know. China's only got 15% of its land is cultivatable and a quite a sizable 11% of that is ruined by environmental degradation, you know, so it, it's, China needs to cooperate just in terms of the food chain, let alone anything else, you know. Uh, we can all help each other, but removing conflict is the big thing. So that's why building bridges is really vital, it seems to me, really vital. The longer we can stay, the more we can be friends, 
It doesn't mean you don't protect your interests. The Americans will protect their interests. The Americans have got to learn quite a few big things as well, you know. I mean, the catastrophe of the, their invasion of Iraq and its consequences is, uh, you know, the biggest disaster so far of the tw 21st century, you know. And it's a disaster for the Americans as well. Not, not only the Iraqis and the Syrians and everybody else, it's um, vast quantities of uh, money and everything else have been wasted. So we've got to get out of these Cold War mindsets. As a historian, writer and filmmaker, Wood has a unique role in helping people in the West understand China better. I mean, understanding Chinese culture is a lifetime's endeavour, you know, and for ordinary people going about their daily business, they can't devote so much of their lives to understanding it, as important as it is. So that's why it's important that you have interpreters, you, you've got all the experts, of course, but you have people like me who are not experts, but we're, we're situated between the people and the experts, and we can try and simplify it and make it available to people. And I think you can do television programs. They're very influential. You know, there are wonderful books written that have been read by a handful of people, but if you distill them into a TV program, you can reach millions of people. So, so you know, that's, th those are important, worthwhile things to do. You can have more and more kids learning Mandarin at school in Britain, for instance, and, more, and, and the study of Chinese history. It's growing, but it's only growing fairly slowly. And as we're probably now going into another period of coldness between the cultures, they won't grow as much as we'd hope. So how does Michael Wood think that East and West can best understand each other? We all come with our own preconceptions, don't we? And, and uh, it's very important with China because China is so different. Even now, you know, it's so different from the Western world. There's a great Sinologist called Simon Lays who wrote that China is the other pole of the human mind. And unless you understand China you, as a Westerner, apart from its own intrinsic value and richness and everything else, unless you understand China, you won't understand what, what are truly universal values in human society on Earth or what are just Western idiosyncrasies. I think that's, that's a, an interesting thought. I mean, we just need to understand each other better. Bridge Builders is produced by Elizabeth Means and Sun Lan, edited by Terry Wilson, and presented by me, Louise Greenwood. The executive producer is Go Chan.